Well, dear friends, I ask you now to please turn your prayerful attention to the epistle to the Romans and the chapter 8, that portion of God's word that I read to you in your hearing. And I read to you just once again the verses 15 to the verse 19 of Romans chapter 8. The epistle to the Romans chapter 8, verse 15 to 19. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed In us, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. And this afternoon, with the Lord's help, as we look at some of these verses here, I want us to consider the subject of adoption, because there is a lot of confusion on this subject. It is a greatly encouraging subject, but it is a subject that I think is needful, particularly if we're Christians. And those who are not Christians, I want to try to explain, with the Lord's help, what the doctrine of adoption is. And so I hope that this will be helpful to both Christian and those who know not the Lord. May the Lord open one's eyes, but especially one's heart, and do that work of grace in the heart. For that is of the Lord. It's not something the preacher can do. It is of God. Now you notice twice in this chapter, we find this word, Adoption. Notice, first of all, in the verse 15, and here Paul is the apostle, he is speaking to Christians. Very clear uh, from Romans chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Beloved of God, called to be holy, or hagiakos, which means holy, called to be saints is the word there, but the Greek is holy. And here he is speaking concerning Christians. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And if you come down again to the verse 23, you'll see that word used again there. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So we want to consider this doctrine of adoption. It's important that you have your Bibles open there just to see what I'm saying and follow with me in these texts. Now we're very thankful that the Word of God uses terminology that we are familiar with in this world. We're all, I trust, familiar with the word adoption and what it means. And this is a way in which God describes the relationship that he has with his children. By nature, the Bible says we are children of wrath, even as others. You and I, we have our first parents. We're all related in some way or another. We can all trace back our origins to two original beings. God made them fully grown human beings, Adam and Eve. We all have common parents, as it were, Adam and Eve. 
And we know, and I'm sure you can understand when we consider this word adoption, what it means. Where a child is taken into another family, from one family, or perhaps parents were killed and it was put in an orphanage. Sometimes very harrowing and difficult circumstances, children are taken from uh, families and placed into another family. And these things can be quite tragic. We live in a fallen world, don't we? Uh, We have read here of the travail of the sons of men. We have read how the whole of the world has been subject to corruption. Not only the trees out there, not only the plants, we see death and decay all around us. And one day God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And parents either die or there's been some trouble in the family and children are adopted into a new family. And that child is given a new status. Now in the Roman world at this time, adoption was viewed so highly that if a child was adopted, it not only received that name of the new family, but it was considered a real birth child, as if it was just a, uh, you know, a natural child. It had the same status as a natural child to those parents. What can we say about adoption? When we think about adoption, adoption in and of itself is, we must say, it's an act of love. It's an act of kindness. Here a child was not perhaps previously loved or cared for by its natural parents, or perhaps unable to be for some reason. Maybe some accident or something has taken place, we don't know. But there are various circumstances in which children are taken into adoption. And there are many examples also in the Bible of people that were adopted or taken into another family. We think, first of all, of Moses. Now, of course, we know what was happening in the days of Moses. How Pharaoh was killing all the little baby boys. And we know what Moses' parents did. Is they put him amongst the bulrushes. And Pharaoh's daughter came and found him there. And took a great liking to Moses. And took him in as her own child. And he was raised up in the very palace of Pharaoh. Amidst that circumstance. It's amazing, isn't it, when we consider all of that. Of course, all of that was ordained by God. He was before everything. And then there's, of course, Esther in the Bible, who was adopted by her uncle Mordecai. And there are other examples. Now, of course, adoption, as we say in this world, is is a good thing. But remember, it's temporal. You think about adoption in this world. It only lasts for a short while. We're only here for just a little while, aren't we? Parents die or you die. We live in a world that is going to end soon. There is eternity before us. And that's really where I want us to begin this afternoon and think about God's adoption, the adoption of his people. And I want us to learn the contrasts and comparisons over and against what we could say normal or human adoption. And uh, there are glorious 
parallels, but there are huge contrasts at the same time. You've heard of contrasts and comparisons. And in this way, those who are saved will see, and I trust give are given reason and cause to rejoice in the goodness of God toward them. And those who are not, we pray that you might truly have your eyes opened by God and by his Spirit and see, indeed, that none of us are worthy to be adopted. Some people think that they are worthy of God. But nobody, let me say, friends, is worthy of God. And what we're going to say this afternoon is that salvation is entirely a gratuitous act of God. It, it is a, a glorious thing. It is something that the Christian ought always to be rejoicing in. The adoption that they have in Jesus Christ. Because it was never merited. It is the complete and absolute favor of Almighty God. It is it's really based on mercy. That's really what adoption is. At the heart of it, it is based on mercy. You see, many people think, many unbelievers think that salvation is based on good works. But it could never be. Never be. So we want to think upon these things. Here, verse 23, the Apostle Paul is telling us here that Adoption, and we think here in this world, when we think of adoption, in the first place, adoption takes place, as I said, very temporarily. We're just here for a few years, a little while, and we're adopted physically, we could say. Isn't that true? Somebody physically adopts you. They, you wouldn't say, well, they, you know, you've been adopted if you're not taken in to the family home and cared for. And it's just on paper. It's not really adoption, is it? But you see, with God, it's not only spiritual, but it is physical in the final sense. You notice in verse 23, Paul here writing to Christians, and he says, and not only they, he's speaking about creation and the world and all that God has made, the, 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 the present creation groans for that new heavens and that new earth. But he says, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, or the down payment, as it were, of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting, now notice, for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Here, when we're thinking about adoption, there's two aspects of it. There's the spiritual, and then there is going to be the physical. There's going to be the redemption. Notice, waiting for the adoption to wit or to witness the redemption of our body. That is the proof of it. When man and woman will be called out of the graves and their bodies will be completely transformed and changed forever and their renewed spirits will join their bodies forever and forever, that will be to wit the redemption, which we're speaking there in verse 23. Now the question is, what is adoption? The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives an answer. In 
Question 34, the question is asked, what is adoption in the Westminster Confession? And the answer given is adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And I want you to just think about that little statement there where it says it is an act of God's free grace. Now, what we mustn't do is we mustn't confuse that with election. We mustn't confuse adoption with election. And I know you sometimes hear these terms used from the pulpit. Let's not confuse that. God chooses. But let me say adoption is truly a transaction that has to take place in time. It's an act of Almighty God. And the proof of it is the working of his spirit, whereby the sinner is quickened and they are brought into a saving knowledge, or we could call it faith, in the Son of God. And the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It is an act that takes place in time. All Reformed teaching will, will teach that, what the Scriptures simply state here. It is an act of God. You notice in Galatians chapter 4, and here's the proof of this. If you turn there in Galatians chapter 4 and the verse 4, we read this, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world. And while we could say Abraham was a child of God, that's true. I want you to think about this. God is a God of justice. And in order to adopt his children, a legal transaction had to take place in this world. And when did it take place? In the fullness of time. There was a transaction there at Calvary. But before that, there had to be a life that was lived in the room in the stead of sinners. And I often say this, and it's true. Jesus Christ lived a substitutionary life. He not only died a substitutionary death, but he lived a substitutionary life. So that in salvation, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed or given to the believer. And that is received by faith in time. But at the cross, all the debts of his people are laid upon Christ. So you notice in Galatians 4.4, have a look there. With me, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, that is, he was conceived in the womb of Mary, by whom? By the Holy Spirit, made under the law. He came under the moral law of God. He came under that law. Why? Well, verse 5 tells us to redeem them that were under the law. Now notice that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, it hadn't yet taken place in time. A transaction had to be done, a life had to be lived, and that a death had to be take place. There's no other way. Because God is a God of justice. He said, they shall be mine in the Old Testament to his people. 
So, for whom God foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called, says Romans 8. And those whom he called, he justifies. He justifies by faith and brings them into that adoption, as we read here, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, it didn't happen in eternity past. God predestinated his people in eternity past. And he said, they will be mine. But remember this, the sins have to be paid for. The debt has to be paid for, and a positive righteousness had to be earned on their behalf. Now just think of the the sheer wonder and the miracle of adoption. It is a miracle, isn't it? Because when you think about it, the person whom God adopts into his family doesn't want to be in his family by nature. Nobody by nature wanted to be in this family. What were we? We were rebels, some of us, all of us, in fact. We were by nature, says the Apostle Paul, children of wrath, even as others. You see, the first thing I want you to think about is the the person who God adopts into his family is somebody who rebelled against God, who was at war with God. They knew the truth, and yet they held down the truth. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They denied God. And that's amazing, therefore, isn't it, that God should ever adopt somebody and bring them into his family. Were they they rebelled against God by the way that they lived, by the way that they thought, by the way that they spoke? If you just turn there to Ephesians chapter 2 and the verse 3, the apostle tells us, he, he describes uh, these Ephesians, these believers at Ephesus, what they were before they were saved. He says, among whom also we had... We all had our conversation in times past. He's speaking about people in the world who were dead in trespasses and sins. In times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You see, and this gives us great hope. When we look at some of you and we think, maybe some of you might, tend to think, well, there's no hope for him. There's no hope for her. Well, you just don't know who the Lord might have mercy on. This is what he says. You know, the Lord can save even the hardest of sinners. And he adopts them and he brings them into the family. Not because they're good, notice. But they were, by nature, children of wrath, notice, even as others. But notice, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were when? Half dead? When, when we believed? No. But even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. You notice that? These people, think of it, were perhaps even those that blasphemed God, took the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and used it as a byword, as a swear word. Now, I'm told that in this country, if you want to adopt a child, it costs a great deal of money. Perhaps even tens of thousands 
sometimes much more. If you want to bring somebody in from overseas, there are ways in which you can do it, but there are all sorts of hurdles in the way. It can be expensive. I was doing my research this week, but you've got to have this in place, you've got to have that in place. It can be very difficult. And sometimes the most unsavory people on the top of the list, and that's wrong, isn't it? Well, this country many years ago used to have many orphan houses. Times were difficult. Times were tough. Today you have a lot of foster parents, and I'm trying to speak very sensitively on the subject, because there may be those who have been in that sort of situation and know somebody in that situation, and these things happen. We live in a fallen world, don't we? But if you look and you do some research on the internet and you study Mr. Bernardo and those who have uh, done great work for children who were orphans and how they have gone to great pains to make sure that they were properly cared for and went into good homes, and that's only right. Well, if you went into a... Back in those days, the old orphan houses in the 1800s, it it was a, a typical thing for a prospective parent to walk in one of those orphan homes and the children to line up outside. In fact, I've seen pictures of children with little tags on them and their names and their age. And the prospective parent would sometimes ask to see the children and they would examine them, look at them up and down and see if they were healthy or or is this one going to be troublesome? And common sense tells you that if you're a prospective parent, you're not going to pick the troublemaker. Well, that's how the world thinks. Maybe if you're a Christian, you might have just compassion on one. You, your heart goes out to this one or that one. But that's how it was. The prospective parent would look, walk down that line and examine the child and pick that child and uh, choose to, if it met the approval of the orphanage, to take that child to its home. But I suppose they wouldn't, as I said, pick the worst. But what has God done with his children? He's he's picked sinners. What did the Lord say? I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What a difference. What a vast difference. You know, we, we might like some nice child to come and live in our home. and How dare he or she behave like that? But God, he, he, he adopts his children. He, he doesn't, in fact, look at their record. But it's despite their record that he, he chooses them and he, he adopts them into his family. That he has mercy and he has grace. Now that's a miracle in itself, isn't it? That the infinitely holy, glorious God of heaven should have mercy upon even the chiefest of sinners. We think of the Apostle Paul who, by the Spirit of God, penned this epistle, who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ and who stopped him and who had mercy. He said, I obtained mercy, the Apostle Paul. So that's the first thing we could say. A big contrast, isn't it? Between... Worldly adoption 
and God's adoption. And you think about it sometimes even, and you hear cases of this. I was a while ago listening to a documentary on the radio of foster parents that have had difficulty with children. Sometimes they take them back. Children are just too much trouble. But God never does that with his children. Never. No matter what they do in their Christian life, that love is forever. He never forsakes them. Something else. I want you to think of the cost of adopting one into the family of God. As I said, some places, some countries, and even here, it can be a costly exercise. Maybe even tens of thousands of pounds. It's got a little bit easier these days, I think. But what a far higher cost to adopt into the family of God for a a, a child of wrath to come into the the family of God. As as I have already outlined this, the expense of, of two payments that had to be made. There's first of all the expense of the life of 33 years of a spotless, impeccable obedience before Almighty God the Father in which the Son of God lived. He, he came and he who made the world, the world was made by him. And when he came into the world, by the way, the world knew him not. The world received him not. Even his own people received him not. Although the word of God spoke about him in the Old Testament, he came to this world. And the Jews, who had the privilege of the oracles of God and the testimony and the law, and the prophets, they rejected the Messiah when he came to the world. He, they rejected God. And yet, what was he doing? He came, as Isaiah says, under the law of God. He magnified the law of God, and he made it honorable. And what a cost that was. He endured the hostility of the world in which he created. And then... At the end of it all, what an awful load he had to bear. The weight of all of the sins of his people. Isaiah 53, the verse 11 says, For he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their their iniquities. That's what he did. He bore all of the iniquities of those whom he would justify. No more, no less than the iniquities of his people. In 1 Peter 2.24 we read, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. All of my sins, past, present and future, were laid upon Jesus Christ. My, I can't begin to equate all of my sins. If my righteousness is of filthy rags, how much worse are my sins? But he bore them in his own body, that he might present me justified before Almighty God. There was no other way. It wasn't just simply um, the piercing of his hands and his feet, and somehow he was just a sacrifice. But the scriptures say he actually bore the sins 
of his people in his own body. Punishment had to be met. Wrath had to be placated. Justice had to be met. No more, no less, God's justice scales are balanced. The Father didn't lay upon him any more or any less than was required. And as the Scriptures say, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. But what a price that was. The Apostle Paul tells the Colossians, in Colossians 2.14, he says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That's what he did. All the penalties that were against God's people. Now, I suppose if you were to take a child into your home, you wouldn't be too worried about their past record, would you? You see, this is the difference when it comes to God. God's heaven is holy. Heaven is clean. There's nothing that defiles heaven. God simply just can't take people to heaven and say, welcome in. A price, the full satisfaction of every single sin had to be met. The sin of his people were laid upon Christ. And again, that positive righteousness had to be lived. When he came under the law, it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. There has to be a righteousness before God that no sinner could ever earn. Many people are trying to Work up a righteousness before God. It's a hopeless exercise because you have so much sin of the past. It's foolish. It's folly, isn't it? And again, I suppose if a family asked the orphanage for a child that asked for a perfect obedience, there would be no such children. No such children. And you see this just gives us a picture, doesn't it, of God's holiness and his requirements and what heaven requires. Because there's nothing defiled in heaven. The reason why death has come is because of sin. And if God were to allow any sin into heaven, unpunished, he would impugn his holiness and his justice. He would cease to be a God of holiness and justice. Well, you see, the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to heaven to show people how to earn their way to heaven. That's how many people think. Well, if I just be something like the Lord Jesus, God will accept me. He'll accept my good life. It's not like that at all. He didn't come simply to show how to live, but to show that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father, as he said, but by him. He didn't come to show you how to live. Yes, there are examples we can glean from his life. But he is the way. He is the door. In John 4, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now again, many theologians debate the subject of adoption. When are Christians adopted into the family of God? Well, as I said, adoption takes place in time. We mustn't confuse it, confuse it with election and calling and justification. But it happens in time, and there are things that we can say about this. Adoption is about mercy. And you think about this. Before Adam ever sinned, he didn't know what mercy was. Because he didn't need mercy. Because he was upright. He had never sinned. But sin has spread to all men. When Adam sinned, he plunged all of humanity into a lost estate. All was lost. Now you see, adoption is not a cold, hard doctrine. It's something heart-melting. And it's the truth. It's a glorious thing. There are unspeakable blessings, and I want to bring at least eight. Now, don't be put off by that. Let me bring you eight here this afternoon, very briefly. What comes with adoption? First of all, we're in a new family. When God adopts us, and that new family will never sin one day. Never sin one day. And you see, this is the chief difference between somebody who's saved. They care about that. Christian doesn't want to sin. Although he he does sin, sin grieves him now. But they are brought into a new family. We used to belong to a fallen family, a ruined family, ruined parents, Adam and Eve. And we notice that the arguments beginning in Genesis chapter 3, it was her fault, it was his fault, it was the devil's fault. That's the world, isn't it? And there's going to be no arguing in heaven. There's going to be no debating in heaven. There's going to be no pride in heaven. We're reminded, aren't we, in 1 Corinthians 15, the verse 22, For as in Adam all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Not just alive now, but alive forevermore. As he said, I that was dead am alive forevermore. We are going to to never die. This new family will never see death. The second death. Death in its ultimate sense. True death is separation from God forever and ever. God is life. Never be separated from God. The second blessing that adoption brings is that we may know that we have been loved and we will be loved forever. You know, this is something people speak about. You turn on the radio. I'm not saying do it. But if you were to, and you listen to all the songs of this world, it's, songs are about love. Quite frankly, we know we're loved less, aren't we? We're unlovable. By nature, we're unlovable. There's nothing lovely about us. We're all sin. We're all unclean. But you know, the blessing of adoption brings us into a knowledge that we have been loved and God loves 
forever. People's love, even young people, their love blows hot and cold, doesn't it? One day it's this, next day it's that. Even a parent's love can blow hot and cold for its child. And sadly, some children do such heinous things in their lives that even their parents stop loving them. And that's sad. But God's love is forever. Jeremiah 31 verse 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. God is from everlasting to everlasting. We're told in Proverbs 8 that his delight was always with his people. He loved them. He knew them. He foreknew them from all eternity past. Now I'm sure you think about these little children in an orphanage, particularly in the 1800s. And even now, in most cases, those children must have felt so unloved, so unwanted, so uncared for. But in time, if they're taken into a good home, they will feel loved and cared for. And that must have been a precious thing. To feel that love, to know that love. And maybe, sadly, because sin is in all of us, they may offend that parent. And maybe, as I mentioned, foster parents can just take the children back. We don't want this child anymore. There's too much trouble. And then they must feel sad for themselves. And that that love now seems to have waned and waxed cold. That can go, can't it? But not so with God's children. You think of Peter, when Peter denied the Lord. The Lord never denied him. The Lord never forsook him. We can never lose the Lord's love. That's a blessing, isn't it? Because God is unchanging. But, but as I said, there are some children in this life who can commit such terrible things that even their parents forsake them and never show them love again. For the Lord has an unchanging love. He said, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. And he means by that he will always love his people. What did the Lord Jesus say in John 15? He says in verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. And then he said, Continue ye in my love. You know, and it's often the case, isn't it, when we realize somebody else's love for us, it melts our hearts to love, doesn't it? We think of how unworthy we are. He says, I've, I've loved you just as the Father has loved me. We can't imagine that. How has the Father loved his Son? Perfectly. And Jesus Christ therefore loves his children, the children of God, perfectly. And then he says, continue ye in my love. You see, it's, it's based upon his love. It's the love of God that constrains the heart of the child of God. The third blessing is that we receive a new nature. Adoption brings with it a new nature. This is why I say it happens in time. And in time that new nature comes because of the Holy Spirit that comes to indwell the believer. 
You think of a child that is adopted, it, it receives many things. Maybe it was living in the orphanage before. But it comes into a, a home now, it has a bed, it has clothes, it has new things, things like that. A new family. And a Christian receives lots of new things. And one of the most blessed things is not only God, but a new nature. To want to please God. The very fact that they believe and they repent of their sins is proof of that new nature. Let me encourage you. Repentance and faith are evidences of the new nature. There can be no repentance and faith without it. It's impossible. As we've read, the carnal mind, the natural mind is enmity with God. It's not subject to God, neither indeed can it be. But does your heart go out to God? The things that I've been saying, do they melt your heart? These might well be evidences that you don't love this present world. That little child doesn't want to go back to the orphanage, but it loves all that it has now. It's been given new things. I've often used this illustration. A father who's having trouble with his son to get his life in order to tidy up his messy room. And he knew that son had a lovely picture. He, 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 he loved a picture. They used to walk by a shop all the time. And the father thought, well, I've got an idea. I'll buy that picture and I'll put it in my son's room. And you know what the son did? That picture was so beautiful that everything in that room started to look out of place. So the little boy started to organize everything in his life now, in his room, around that picture. And that picture, my friends, is the Lord Jesus and his love for sinners. And that's it, isn't it? That's at the heart of the Christian life. We love him because he first loved us. Paul tells us, whoever is in Christ is a new creature. We have a new view of God. We have a new understanding. We have a new heart. We have a new mind. We have a new affection. And above all, Peter says, we are partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. And we're new creatures. Everything is past that is old. Still remaining sin. We are new. The life is changing. The room is being transformed, as it were, by the glorious picture of Calvary and all that God has done. The love of God. Greater love hath no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. Adoption brings us into all of that, a new nature, a new heart. What did the Lord say? I will take away that stony heart and I will put in you a new heart and you then have new interests. You see, it's all because of a new nature, isn't it? Where are your affections, young people? Are they here below? Well, this new nature struggles against sin. It will. The old corruptions. Something else, fourthly, when we are adopted into the family of God, we may call him Father. You can't call him Father unless you've really repented of your sins and you believed upon Christ. You've got no warrant to. 
We're adopted by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. There's no higher privilege afforded that somebody here upon this sinful world may call God Father. But it is only through Jesus Christ. And when we call him Father, it identifies with whom we belong to. We belong to God, the Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ. And let me say this, to belong to the family of God is a wonderful thing. Some people might long to be, you know, people can pride themselves on their last name. You know, oh, you're one of these people. People pride themselves on heritage. But friends, there's no greater privilege than to be a child of God. You, You can always dig into a family's past and find trouble. But in God, there's no darkness. In God, there, there is perfect holiness. In him, there is no shadow of turning, nor variableness. And James tells us that he begat us by Jesus Christ. James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And friends, if we are God's children... It should fill our hearts with joy. And we should never be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. You know, many people like to take pride in their titles. Somebody might get an MBE. Somebody might be called a sir. And you've heard stories of people wanting to change their checkbooks and bank statements because they take great pride in that, those things. But friends, MBEs and sirs, those will all go. But God's name and God's heritage never fade away. Never fade away. Some child may take pride being adopted to a certain family, but friends, there's no greater family than the family of God. Never be ashamed of the Lord if you are his. It's a great privilege. The fifth blessing is that we have the same spirit. This is is proof. You want to know whether you're a child of God. Do you have the same spirit? We're told here we have the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Everyone, it's true. You meet some people from a farming community. Farmers' children, they all seem to behave the same way. Or somebody from a coal mining background or somebody from this community. It's true that our environment, we are products of our environment. And in the same way, in the spiritual realm, if you have been born again, there's something different about you. You are spiritually changed and you have the same spirit. You don't like the spirit of this world. You don't like the ethos. You don't like the mindset of this world. You breathe as it were a different air. You are uncomfortable with this world. Verse 15, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You see, prayer 
and crying to God in prayer is proof of life. Do you pray, young people? Do you pray? That's proof whether you're converted or not, whether you're saved, whether you've been adopted into the family of God, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And what are God's children like? Well, they're obedient. Not perfectly, but they seek to conform to God's word and his ways. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. He says, now you're obedient. You used to walk a different way, but now you have received God's spirit. Let me ask you that. Is that true of you? Or do you walk according to the spirit of this world? according to the spirit of this age. Because if you do, remember what the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil. Don't try to convince yourself that you're a child of God. You don't receive my word. You don't receive my witness. You don't walk as the children of God. You're of your father the devil. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. And so are the self-deceived. They lie to themselves. But God's word exposes the truth, doesn't it? How do you know whether you're born again? If we walk according to the truth. But there's something else. Another another thing, you you think of Moses. When Moses, of course we were thinking earlier about how Moses, how he was adopted. Remember? But there was a time when Moses said, "I, I can't bear this. What's happening in Egypt? And he was incensed by the way that the Israelites were being treated, by the way God's people were being treated. And uh, we read there in Hebrews 11, verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It was a time he said, "I, I don't want to be known as an adopted son. Of Pharaoh's daughter. I, I don't want to belong in the palace. And there comes a time where the, somebody is born again. They say, I don't want to belong to this world. I belong to God. And it says there, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And I'm afraid there are a lot of professing Christians Professing, and I use the word professing, who are convinced that they've been adopted into the family of God, but they rather do the opposite to Moses. They choose rather the pleasures of sin for a season. They're not willing to stand against the tide of this world. You watch them and all that they do, How are we engaged in our lives? What do you watch on the television? You switch it off. Social media. Pleasures of sin. Music. Drink. Revelry. Peter says we've passed with all this. We're children of God now. Don't be self-deceived, friends. Some people... They give more honor to their own family than the family of God. They think more about 
And I'm not saying be disrespectful to your parents. But some people choose their family over the family of God. Some people choose property, houses, a place to live over where God would have them live. Solemn, isn't it? Our choices say a lot about our adoption, whether it's real or not. Sixthly, another blessing adoption brings us into is all of our needs are provided. Our needs. You think of, in terms of, a, of an earthly perspective, that parent saw a need for that child. Do you not think it's got the very best intention for that child? Of course it does. But how much more, our Heavenly Father, will he supply our needs according to his riches in glory by Jesus Christ? You see, that's the difference. God provides what we need, not what we want. Because sometimes what you want is bad for you, my friend. And we learn to be content with our needs. Chiefly content with God. If you don't have God, you feel empty that day. If he's not in your heart, you feel a longing. Return, O Spirit. You feel it, don't you? You feel far away. You know those words that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples when he said in Luke twelve twenty eight, If then God so clothe the grass, which today is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? He says, look at the plants, look at the trees, look at the birds, look at everything. Are you not of more value than these things? And he knows what you need. You know, sometimes a child has to, to, to say to the parent, I, I'm in need of this, but God already knows before we ask. What did he say? If a son shall ask bread of any of you, that is, a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give Will a a fish give him a serpent? And so on. And then he says, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father? He does, doesn't he? And above all, he gives his spirit in great measure. You think of Job, he was a a man who was greatly blessed by God, but God took away those things. It seems... In the mid part of his life, he lost 10 children in a day and he lost thousands and thousands of sheep and camels and oxen and all of that. And God took it away. Why? To hurt him? No, but to bless him and to teach him things that he needed to learn. And in the midst of all of that crisis, God gave him rest. God gave him peace. Isn't that wonderful? So that we read in Job 34 verse 29, when he, God, giveth quietness, who then can make trouble? You know, that's what God gives you. Amidst your trials, amidst your difficulties, he gives you peace. And we read of Job at the end, in Job 42.10, And the Lord returned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends 
Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. That amazing? See, God just doesn't just know our needs, but he wants to improve us. He's our maker. He's our creator. And Paul says to the Philippians, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God is gracious. But here's the thing. God tells us, David says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. That is, when you make God the center of your life and you delight yourself in the Lord, what you find is that his desires become your desires. That's the key, isn't it? Another blessing, seventhly, is adoption brings us into loving discipline. You might say, well, that doesn't sound like a blessing to me. Chastisement? It is. You expect to go into a good home. You expect there to be rules be put in place. You expect there to be chastening if need be. And it's all proof that God loves his children. The Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, says to the Hebrews, he says in Hebrews 12, verse 6, Have ye forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children, my son? Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. It's a blessing to be corrected. Because it's always for the good. It's always for the good of the soul, isn't it? Well, sometimes... You know what it happens even in families. Families don't correct children in this life. And children can become a burden to society. They end up in prison and uh, they cause their own children problems. They live very unthoughtless lives. They don't think about other people. They're not a blessing. They're a drain on society and other people. But what does God do? From useless to becoming useful as a Christian in this life so that we serve him and we serve others. It's for our good. And it's a wonderful thing. It's, that's life, isn't it? It's more blessed to give than to receive. And you know, you think about families, that sort of behavior can perpetuate from one generation to the next. You don't discipline your children There are always consequences. The Bible tells us if we spare the rod, we spoil the child. Don't listen to this modern nonsense, friends. We pretend we're wiser than God if we do. Lastly, the eighth blessing of adoption is the glorious inheritance that awaits the soul that is saved and adopted into the family of God. And we've read of that here. What is it? The redemption of our bodies. Soul is brought into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But one day, as we've read here, to wit the redemption of our bodies. That's a glorious thing. And let me just say a few things in closing, friends, as we draw to a close now. This is the inheritance. Everlasting life. 
What can your parents, and I'm not decrying any inheritance that we may receive from our parents. Our parents can give us good things. Sometimes they can give us bad things. They can even bring us debt. You know, I, I heard somebody say the other day to somebody else, you always give me things that end up costing me money. You know, you've heard that. You can inherit debt. You can inherit problems. But after all, whatever your parents give you, you're going to have to part with anyway. And by the way, you won't have them around forever anyway. But with God, you have him forever. And forever and forever and forever. And a family that will never die. And never be lost. And never any sin. That's what we have. And a new heavens. And a new earth. This world has to end because it's a bad world. It's a sinful world. It's a dying world. It's a decaying world. And it has to end, my friends. It has to end with the coming of Jesus Christ. Now you think about it, a parent, it can't leave what their child needs most behind the parent. Can it? You know, we said money can't buy parents, real parents, good parents. Parent has to die. You have to part with mom and dad one day and meet with your creator. And we'll stand before Adam and Eve, whether they were saved or not. Eternity will reveal that. Don't ask silly questions because, quite frankly, we don't have all the answers. But the immediate concern, my friend, is your soul. God has given us his word, placed it before us. The Lord Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And remember, he saves sinners. Remember what I said. The parent walking in the orphanage is probably looking for the best behaved child. But God saves sinners. What an encouragement. But we don't just stop there. Those who truly have been saved are thankful. Solomon, when he, by the Spirit of God, penned those words in Ecclesiastes 1.4, he thought about all of his wealth. He thought about everything that he had attained as a great king. And he said, what profit hath a man after all his labor under the sun? Nothing. He said, life is vanity. And furthermore, he said in chapter 2, verse 20, when he thought about his son, Rehoboam, He said, I went about to cause my heart to to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet a man hath not labored therein. Shall he leave it for his portion? That's those who he is going to leave behind. Who this also is vanity and a great evil. He says, For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it. He's going to put it in that man's hands. And what's going to happen? Rehoboam is going to split the kingdom. And he's going to bring ruin. Inheritances... They don't last. What you want to pass on, even your grandson may lose it. What difference does it make 
You brought nothing into this world, my friends. And it's sure you can take nothing out. John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What has Christ gone to do? He said to his disciples, in my Father's house so many mansions. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe ye in God. Believe also in me, in my Father's house so many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And what do we have here in Romans eight seventeen? We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. The inheritance is through him. And it is undefiled, says Peter. It will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for all that have this spirit and who do not love this world and who have by the grace of God repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should not love the world. You should see it for what it is. And I pray, it is my prayer, that God will open up many eyes to see that this world, in all of its glitter, in all of its glamour, even as we looked and we saw the monarch, the late monarch, being put in the grave, and we may see in the next short while the new monarch, the crown put upon his head, he will have to lay that crown down and stand before God. You might even be a member of the royal household makes no difference, friends. Whether you are the next CEO of Amazon or some mega conglomerate, you will stand before God. And the only inheritance that counts is that which is in Jesus Christ. Solomon said, you know what? He said, this is an evil among the things of all the earth done under the sun. I close with this. There is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. What a mad thing it is to live for this world and the stuff of this world, knowing it's no inheritance. This is the one thing that counts. Do we know Jesus Christ to be our glorious inheritance. My friends, it's a mad world and it's madness to think you could ever be happy here without Christ. Amen.